0: Well, I, I really am looking forward to sharing with you what the Lord has laid at my heart this morning. But uh, before I do, I want to take a moment to talk about something relevant that is going on in our church right now. You might remember that at the beginning of January, I preached two sermons about how we as Go Church will strive to do better in the areas of blessing and missioneering, that those are two areas uh, of our vision. And... Uh, What I didn't realize when I preached those sermons is that they began a larger discussion that is showing me two things. Number one, we have an amazing amount of people who are devoted to this church and care about its future. And I'm very, very thankful for that. And number two, I'm realizing the fact that I need to clarify some things maybe and and explain some things about where we're headed and where we are right now. And then the bottom line is I and the pastor elder team have been hearing from some of you that you are continuing to think about where we're headed as a church. And the key question being asked is not so much what or how, but when, when. And one of the things I want to always strive to do as your pastor is to make sure I continue to communicate with you so that we're all on the same page. So first of all, I want to thank you for being so invested in what we're doing. Uh, and second of all, I want to take this opportunity to explain more about who we are right now and where we're headed in the future. And I'll start by saying it this way. Healthy churches grow like trees, not weeds. If church plants are sprouts, and established churches are trees, then our church is a sapling. We're in the process of growing up from being a church plant into a fully established church. Now, in order for a sapling to grow into a full-size tree, it's going to continue to need everything the little sprout needed to survive, right? It's gonna need sunlight, it's gonna need soil, it's gonna need water, carbon dioxide, but the most important and vital ingredient is time. A weed can grow overnight. But healthy trees take many years to grow, and churches are no different. Around two years ago, our home builders took tree saplings from somewhere else and planted them in front of our houses on our street. Within a year, almost all of the saplings died, including the one in my front yard. Yeah, I was, I was pretty upset about it. I was like, okay. I mean, it got to the point where it was so dead, I had to remove it. It was making the house look not good. I mean, it was, it was a sight to behold. <laughs> But I, I, I couldn't figure it out because we, we took care of it. Like, we watered it three or four times a day. I mean, I had the sprinklers going and, and everything and trying to do everything right to take care of this tree and bring it back to health, but it was just, it was just gone. It was just a goner. Um, and I thought about what it could be. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not in the right place you know, on our street. Maybe they're not getting enough sunlight. Maybe, um, maybe the soil isn't good, which can happen. But then the real issue occurred to me. The real issue was that the saplings were transplanted too early. If they'd had more time to develop and grow, I think they would have survived probably. But because those trees were pushed to grow in an environment that they weren't ready for, they died. And folks, that very same thing can happen to church saplings like ours. If we got to ha- get out ahead of God in the area of building a building or adding programs or too many positions, then this church plan will wind up in an environment that it isn't ready to handle. Right. So please understand that when it comes to our growth from a church plan into an established church, timing is everything. Because a healthy church doesn't grow like a weed. It grows like a tree. But enough of the word paintings, right? What's the plan? What's the destination? What are the details? How do we get from step one to step 10? All right. Well, let me start by saying that I'm not using a manual, and neither did any of the great heroes of our faith. What they did, and what I will continue to do, is to faithfully listen and follow God, because He sees the whole picture. And as for the question of destination, I need to make something very clear. The end goal of our journey in becoming an established church is not the acquisition of a building, because the Bible does not define a healthy church by the building it meets in, but by its ability to love God, love each other, and love everyone. And that is our vision. That's what we're after. And that's why we're focusing on going to the next level and blessing the community and reaching out with the gospel, because we can't ever let our desire for different kinds of growth inside this church replace our desire to be used as a tool for God's kingdom outside this church. And if you don't think that too much inward thinking can make us stop being an outward thinking church, then you probably haven't attended very many churches lately. However, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me on that because A building absolutely can be a powerful tool in many ways in accomplishing our vision. And your pastor elder team is praying regularly about that. And and we're doing our best to look into any options that become available. But at the same time, I don't want any of you to be unaware of the reality that our church, in order for our church to build in the Northwest, we're going to need two things. We're going to need, number one, a financial miracle. And number two, we're going to need proper timing. Now, Do I believe that one day God will lead us to build? Absolutely, I do. But my point is a building is not a destination for our growth, it's a tool to accomplish our vision. And proper timing when it comes to picking up that tool and using it is gonna be vitally important. So just to be clear, I don't believe the time to build is now. Here's what I do believe it is time for. It's time to become the church we strive to be in our vision. That's why we're focusing on strengthening our weaker branches, which are blessing and missionary. But even in that, nothing happens overnight. Nothing happens overnight and everything has proper timing because healthy churches grow like trees, not weeds. So I just wanted to make sure I took the time to explain where we are as a church today before I did anything else. And if you're a guest with us here this morning, we are glad you're here. And I hope that you can tune back in for the rest of the sermon and I'm gonna need water. I am parched. Today, we'll be continuing on in part two of our series called, Is It Really All About Love? and we'll be covering the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, four through six. Now, for the sake of time, I'm gonna need to split part two into two parts today. Otherwise, the children's ministry volunteers just might print out a picture of my head to throw darts at I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> so today, I'm going to talk about the first half of the definition of love, and next week we'll cover the second half. But first, let's take a moment to watch something I'm sure most of you in this room have seen before. <laughs> oh, it's just I, you got to love Princess Bride. I mean, come on. And while I think that that clip is hilarious, I think it also sadly misrepresents many people's skewed understanding of love. The reality is that right now, the world and often the church right along with it is desperately confused about what true love actually is. You see, the same signs that I do in many yards across our neighborhoods. Love is love, they say. Love always wins, they say. We love everyone, they say. And what all of those messages boil down to is that the world, and sadly many churches, have confused love with hypocritical tolerance that idolizes self and a lack of morality. And make no mistake, if that's what love is, then God is not love, and His true church are not a people of love either. But thankfully, that's not what love is, and we can know that because of what God told us in 1 Corinthians thirteen four through six. So I'd like to invite you to turn there now with me and uh, follow along on screen, if you will, or take out your Bibles. And uh, again, that's 1 Corinthians thirteen four through six, starting with verse four, Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So in a minute, we'll really break this down, and I think uh, we'll, we'll talk about each specific area, but in general, this passage points us to a working definition of love that we will return to throughout both this sermon and the next. So here it is. True love is a choice that is both inspired and empowered by Christ to put others before self. Again, true love is a choice that is both inspired and empowered by Christ to put others before self. Now, here's where I'm getting that from in our passage. First of all, I use the word choice because everything in our text is not a feeling, but a decision. Patience is a choice. Kindness is a choice. Love is a choice. Second of all, The phrase inspired by Christ comes from the fact that every action in 1 Corinthians 13, four through six is something that was exemplified by Jesus Christ while he was here on earth. Third of all, love is empowered by Christ because without him, we can't love. And fourth of all, every attribute of love in our passage boils down to putting others before self, whether that means others in the church, others in our family or others in the world. That said, we need to return to this idea of our love being inspired by Christ because I want you to know that while that may sound kind of obvious or basic, I really had to actually think about that this week because the fact of the matter is Jesus is God and our definition of love is about putting others before self, which leads me to kind of open Pandora's box this morning and ask, can God actually put others before himself? Now, honestly, that's a complicated question with a complicated answer, but here's the bottom line. In terms of authority, value, lordship, and worth, God does not put others before himself. He's number one. But in terms of sacrifice, with the context of love, God can and has chosen many times in the past to put others before self. And right now, at this moment, some of you are thinking, okay, and others of you are thinking, whoa, where are we going here? So I just want to be clear on this because there's a subtle lie that's being passed on throughout the modern church that I need to address right now. The idea that everything God has ever done or ever will do is only for his own glory is a dangerous misunderstanding that doesn't actually come from scripture. And here are three reasons why. First of all, we know from 1 John 4, 8 that God is love, and yet we also know from verse 5 of our passage today that love is not self-seeking. In addition to that fact, the Greek word for love in both passages is agape. So with that being the case, how can God only ever act for His own glory? In other words, if God is love and love is not self-seeking, then it does not then logically follow to say that God only ever acts for Himself. For those of you who are mathematically and philosophically minded, I've created a syllogism for you on screen and in your bulletin to help illustrate my point. Now a syllogism is basically a form of deductive reasoning where you have two premises and then you arrive at a conclusion. But the best way to explain it is just an example. So here's an an example of a syllogism. Okay, you've got the premise, all frogs are amphibians. Okay, you got another premise, all amphibians can live in water and on land. Okay, and then you've got your conclusion, all frogs live in water and on land. So in the same format, God equals love from the Bible, and love is not self-seeking from the Bible. Therefore, God cannot equal only self-seeking. So that's the first issue with the popular misunderstanding that God only ever acts for his own glory. The second issue is this. If God only acts for His own glory, then why does Romans eight seventeen say that if we suffer with Christ, we will also share in His glory? A God who only cares about His own glory wouldn't share it. Third of all, how does the gospel only bring glory to God when our belief in it grants us eternity, an abundant life, salvation from hell, and rescue from sin? Last time I checked, all of those things benefit us and not just God. So I say again, the idea that everything God has ever done or ever will do is only, keyword word only, for His glory is a dangerous misunderstanding that doesn't actually come from Scripture. Now is it biblical to say that everything God does glorifies Himself? Yes, it is. But to say that all of it is only for God's glory is problematic because that is the point in which we begin to make God's own definition of love a contradiction. If you're still not following me, then I'll just say like this. God created us for His glory, but He also created us because He loves us. God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for His own glory, but He also made those covenants because He loves us. Jesus Christ went to the cross and rose again for His own glory, but He also went to the cross and rose again because He loves us. And so even though God has every right to be selfish, make no mistake, we do not serve a selfish God. God is love, and He is the one who laid down His life for us. And for some reason I can't explain, throughout history He has chosen to care to take our situation into account when He had every right to wipe us out. And church, that's, that's not selfishness, that's love. So all that to say, please remember that as we work through each point today, the example of Christ really does show us that true love is about putting others before self. Okay, that was the most challenging part of the sermon, mental gymnastics. I've been chewing on that for a while. But with that understanding, let's move on to the specifics of verses 4 through 6, starting with the fact that true love is patient, not irritable. I'm combining those two attributes of what love is and what it isn't because they're really two sides of the same coin. No matter how you say it, you can't be patient and irritable at the same time. You have to choose one or the other. In fact, I'd argue that the main ingredient of irritableness is a lack of patience. Think about it. When you and I get irritable, the main issue is that we have lost patience with someone or something. When parents get irritated with their kids, what they're really... Doing is they're they're done waiting on them for them to grow up. (laughs) It's true. When drivers get irritated on the road, what that really means is that they're done waiting on everyone to get out of their way. When husbands and wives get irritated with each other, what that really means is that they're done waiting on the other spouse to change in the way that they think they should. Why? Because irritableness is wrapped up in putting self before others while patience is wrapped up in putting others before self. Think about the most patient people you know, and I guarantee you'll find that there is at least one thing they all have in common. They aren't selfish. When I think of patience, I think of my granddad, because for a long time, as long as I've known him, he's always been brought the most joy through other people. Whether it be his wife, his kids, his grandkids, or now even his great-grandkids, Granddad sees his family as more important than his desires, and he'd rather see us succeed than see himself succeed. That's what makes him a man of patience. But really, Granddad is simply following the example of someone who has shown all of us what true patience really looks like, Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about how patient Jesus was while he lived here in a human body? He was patient enough to live into his 30s even though he knew he came here to die just so that he could sympathize with us as human beings. That's some patience when you consider the alternative because the reality is that Jesus could have died for all of us, risen and ascended all within about a week, but that's not what he did. He endured childhood, he endured adolescence, he endured adulthood, and he endured everything that went along with it. So I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus had every right to make it quick, And he had all the power in the world to snap his fingers and make everything go by faster. But again, that's not what he did. Because Jesus chose patience. And that's not the only example either. Think about the 12 disciples. Have you ever thought about the fact that the disciples didn't fully recognize that Jesus was God until after the resurrection? That's a long time. I mean, think about it. After all that Jesus had done to reveal his identity The healings, the miracles, bringing back Lazarus from the dead, calming the storm by telling the winds and the waves to be still, revealing his authority and teaching and casting out demons. After after all of that, the disciples still didn't fully understand the reality of Jesus' divinity. And yes, Peter did confess that Jesus was the Messiah, but clearly even he still wasn't completely clear on what exactly that meant. So I don't know about you, but if I were in Jesus' shoes, I probably wouldn't have been so patient. In fact, I would have been irritated with the disciples, to say the least. I would have said something like, after three years of public ministry and it's still not clicking? Are you kidding me? But That's not what Jesus did. Instead, Jesus waited four years for the disciples to understand his identity with, without even getting frustrated about it. And he did that because Jesus loved the disciples. And true love, God's kind of love, is patient, not irritable. And maybe in his flesh there were times when Jesus didn't feel like being so patient. But he made the decision to do so anyway. Because he put the Father's plan and the needs of the disciples above his own. So hopefully you understand a little bit more about why true love is patient and not irritable. But how do we really put this into practice? Well, let me start by by asking you to consider what areas in your life that you know you're already not so patient in, because I think we all have them. Are you patient on the road or irritable? Are you more patient with your spouse or more irritable right now? What about your kids, your parents, your boss, your customers, lost people, liberals, political people? People who park three cars on the street in front of your house when they have two spots in the driveway and two spots in their garage. (laughs) Okay, okay, I got a little bit too much into that. That last one is me just calling myself out more than anything. (laughs) But the reality is, church, that if we have areas that we're more irritable than patient, then those are the same areas that we're lacking in true biblical love. Those are the same areas that we're still putting ourselves above others. And the only way we're going to turn it around is to look at the example of Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts because true love is a choice that is both inspired and empowered by Christ to put others before self. That said, there's more to true love in our passage today than patience because true love is also kind and not rude, which is the second point in your bulletin today. The word kind is another one of those words that has been defined in so many ways that it has almost lost its meaning. What, what is kindness? Is it being nice and polite or having grace on someone? Is it an act of service or is it all about saying the right words? Or is kindness all about tolerance and inclusion? If we look at the world, we're just going to continue to get more conflicting answers. But if we look to the example of Jesus, we can find truth. The fact of the matter is that Jesus himself said that a lot, he said a lot of things that people certainly wouldn't call kindness today. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. That's pretty extreme. And the way he taught and called people to repentance was shockingly confrontational a lot of times. So with that, we need to understand two things. First of all, there are times when carefully chosen strong words are the kindest thing that you can do for somebody else. Jesus didn't just call the Pharisees a bunch of idiots, he pointed to the exact way in which they needed to repent, which is more truthful than it is rude. In other words, Jesus was not being unnecessarily offensive just because he felt like it, but in his harsh words, he was actually showing the Pharisees' kindness. It reminds me of the way Scripture speaks of the kindness of God in Romans 2, 4, which says that God's kindness is intended to bring us to repentance. I believe that's exactly what Jesus' intention was with the Pharisees, to bring them to repentance. Second of all, there are times when refusing to be adequately harsh with someone else is actually being unkind to everybody else. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the Jews. If Jesus hadn't called them out, it wouldn't have been kind to those who were blindly following their leadership. So with the understanding that Jesus wasn't always nice, what does it mean to be kind, and what does it mean to be rude in the Bible? I'll just put it like this. To be kind is to speak and act in a way that shows you ultimately value others, and to be rude is to speak and act in a way that shows you ultimately don't. Again, to be kind is to speak and act in a way that shows you ultimately value others, and to be rude is to speak and act in a way that shows you ultimately don't fact of the matter is Jesus was harsh with some and he was gentle with others but in every case Jesus' words showed that he actually valued everyone that said it's one thing to look at Jesus' example and quite another to actually apply it in our own life so how can we be kind and not rude well with the exception of a few of you most of us think we're pretty kind right up until the point in which something upsets us then everything can change very quickly can it for example, how do you respond when a restaurant doesn't get your order right? Or the car in front of you is barely moving and you are in a hurry? How do you react when you, you pay a lot for something and the product you receive is underwhelming and overpromised? Do you throw kindness out of the window in those situations? Or are you determined to not let yourself be rude? And I'm not talking about just letting everything go and being a doormat either. You can be a problem solver and a fixer and still be kind. And here's how. The next time you're in a situation that you are upset about, ask yourself this question. Is what I feel like saying and doing right now going to value or undervalue the person I'm upset with? If you can learn to answer that question honestly, it will guide you away from being rude and help you be kind, even when kindness may not mean being nice. When I was a manager at Chick-fil-A in Kansas City, I remember having a particularly rough evening with an employee named Mary. We were understaffed. She was in a vital position. She was bagging the food and both the drive-through and the front counter, and she was handing it out of the window. She was really doing three people's jobs. But uh, the big problem was she wasn't listening to me and she wasn't listening to our team either, and she's being arrogant about it as well. So I began to get pretty upset, more and more upset, things builded, and I almost reacted in the moment. But then I decided to bring her aside for a private conversation and not do that. And I'm glad I did. So I walked into the kitchen with her and I said, Mary. Look, you're, you're not listening to me and you're not listening to the rest of the team either. I can't go on acting like this is okay when it isn't because that's not good for either one of us. Look, I've seen that you're a hard worker and I've seen uh, that you can do better than this, but if you can't change your attitude, you're, you're going to have to leave. You're going to have to clock out and go home. Sadly, although she said she would change her attitude, Mary didn't change her ways and I had to tell her to go home. But the thing is, after she left, I was happier, our team was happier, and our guests were happier too. And the reason for that is because instead of losing my temper, I somehow managed to stay kind while being confrontational in the midst of a very upsetting situation. And I don't say all that just to toot my own horn, but to prove to you that it really is possible to be kind in difficult situations. You just have to remember to make sure your actions and your words are valuing Other people After all that's exactly what Jesus did But you're not going to be able to do it without His help because true love Is a choice that is both inspired And empowered by Christ to put others Before self The final point from our passage This morning is that true love is Content not envious Now you won't find the word content In our text today but it does say That love does not envy And the exact opposite of envy Is contentment because envy is a choice to desire something that someone else has that you don't. And contentment is a choice to be happy with what you have and trust God with what you don't. In his own life and teaching, Jesus had a lot to say about avoiding envy and striving to be content. In Luke 9, 3, Jesus told the disciples as he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. He told them, Take nothing for the road, no staff, no staff, No traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Why do you think he did that? Because he was trying to teach them that God would give them everything they needed and that the content mentality is the exact opposite of the envy mentality. Another place we can see that is in Jesus' response to the devil's temptation in Matthew 4, 1 through 4. Let's go ahead and read that right now, starting with verse 1 of chapter 4 in Matthew Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, here's the connection. Obviously, Jesus knew he could have made any kind of bread he wanted at any time. If that were Jesus' intent, he wouldn't have waited 40 days to do it. He was fasting to seek the Father. But by the time Satan came around, Jesus was already, he'd already fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible says that he was hungry. So every ounce of mental control was needed on Jesus' part not to burn with desire for the bread that, that he couldn't have, and with perfect timing, at the point of his greatest vulnerability, when everything in his body was screaming out for food, Satan decided to do his worst. And that's always when he decides to do his worst. But amazingly, after being tempted to go after the one thing he didn't have, in verse 4, Jesus refused to give into envy by telling Satan that he was content with the spiritual bread of God. I don't have time to show you today, but if you go on to verse 11, you'll continue to see that pattern of Jesus fighting, the temptation to to envy something he didn't have with contentment, which leads us into application. The best way to avoid burning with desire for what you don't have is to be thankful for what you do have. A priest, a rabbi, and a preacher went on a three-day hike in the wilderness. After a tiresome journey, they returned back and walked into a McDonald's famished. Not noticing the terribly dirty state of the restaurant, they were captivated by the promising pictures and the glow of the menu boards. Ah, a Big Mac. The priest was the first to stop, step up in order, and making the signs of the cross, he said, I'll take a Big Mac, a large fry, a large Coke, and a McFlurry. Unfortunately, he'd forgotten that he had a gift card to Outback in his wallet, but it was too late. Then the rabbi got up to order, and with a determination not to look at the bacon, he said, I'll take what he's having. Then suddenly he remembered that he had some Wagyu steaks in the fridge that were going to go bad, but it was too late. Finally, the preacher stepped up to order, but right before he opened his big, loud mouth, He remembered that his wife had promised to make his favorite meal when he got home, and just like that, he took a look around the restaurant with new eyes and said, never mind, I'm out of here. That night, the priest and the rabbi both endured a sleepless night from food poisoning. (laughs) But the preacher slept like a baby. (laughs) Moral of the story, if you want to avoid envy poisoning, Remember the good things about what you already have. Husbands and wives, when you burn with the desire to lust, you are forgetting the amazing qualities of the spouse that God has already given you. Singles, when you burn with desire to be married, you are forgetting the time that God has given you to pursue Him with an undivided and undistracted heart. Church, when you burn with a desire to talk like He does, look like she does, and have what they have, You're forgetting to remember to be thankful for who God has already made only you to be. That's what Jesus showed us while he was here on earth. And you won't be able to do it without his spirit and your heart. But if you let yourself burn with envy, you'll wind up hurting other people. And that's not love. Because true love is a choice that is both inspired and empowered by Christ to put others before self. Today, we've learned how that is true in three ways. First, true love is patient, not irritable. Second, true love is kind, not rude. And third, true love is content, not envious. Next week, we'll continue working on the definition of love and the rest of 1 Corinthians 13:4 through six. And I'm not gonna spoil the ending, so you're just gonna have to show up to hear the rest. But before I close, the first thing I want to do is point you to some questions you can ask in your Go group later for application um, because I, I forgot to put those in your bulletin. So if you have a pen with you, just write them down or try to remember them if you have Go group tonight. But here they are. Number one, these are questions you can apply from the sermon throughout the week. Number one, what is one area where you need to work on practicing true love as the Bible defines it? And number two, what will you do to make the change? The second thing I want to say is if you wound up here in a seat and you don't even know if you know Jesus, you don't even know maybe even why you're here, but somehow you're here, I want to give you an opportunity right now um, to respond to the gospel. And uh, we we use that word a lot in, in churches and in conversations, and we have a lot of Christianese words um, that sometimes we don't define. So... I just want to explain to you today that the gospel is the fact that it's the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again for you. He died for your sins. He died to forgive you, and um, it's something that has to be accepted in a moment. It's not something that you can just kind of let hang there and just always be or say, "I've always been a Christian." That's really that's really not how it works. There's there's a decision in a a moment in time. Um, So I just wanted to explain that this morning and. Um, before we pray, I just want to give you an opportunity to, re- to respond to that. Um, so in a minute, we're going to have some, some folks in the back that you can come back and, and pray with, and that can pray over you, and we're going we're gonna to have one last song. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, I just pray for anybody here right now that doesn't know you. We've talked a lot about love, and the truth is that, that you love them. You love people that don't yet know you, that don't yet love you, and you desire for them to come to know you. Lord, your word says that you're not desiring that anybody should perish. Lord, I just pray um, for anybody in this room right now that maybe is close or has understood some things but doesn't understand it all, um, that they would just take a moment of faith right now, or that they would think about taking a moment of faith. To believe that you really are who you say you are. You really did die for us on the cross. You really did forgive us. And you are the only way to be saved, believing in you. That's it. You're the only true love. You have shown us where it comes from. You have shown us what it means. Lord, throughout the week, for the rest of us who know you, I just pray that we would be able to put the things that we've learned from your word into application um, to think about where we might need to do some work um, and, and what we're going to do about that because your word is clear on the balance that you help us as believers that your holy spirit is in our hearts but that also our diligence is required that we need to that we need to try um, and and so lord i just pray that you would help us think through how we could be further sanctified to become more like you in the area of love and all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed this sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.